Good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Kern. I'm one of the pastors here at Wild Street. It's a pleasure to have you along this morning. Uh, I just rushed up from St. Matt's. I'm fully charged, ready to go. Um, I was here on Friday night as well. So on Friday night, we had the youth group in here, uh, seated where you were seating. And as I was speaking to the youth group, um, one of the things of speaking to the youth group, you feel this real inadequacy because you feel like you as a 44-year-old man are just not relevant to their lives. <laughs> and so even though I have an earring here and I think, man, I'm relevant, uh, it just, I don't think it really cuts it. It doesn't cut it. Um, and, and so you have this longing inside yourself to be relevant to the kids. And, but not only me, uh, I want the message of Jesus to be relevant to them. But a lot of the time I think, uh, particularly I, having grown up in a youth group myself, uh, I went to Roman Catholic school, went to Mass every week, um, you sit there and you hear about Jesus over and over again and what you do with the message is you kind of put it to the spam box in your head. It just, it comes in and you go straight to spam, straight to spam, straight to spam. And I don't know, as you're talking to friends and family, neighbours, about do you find that that happens? The message of Jesus is just not relevant to them. What do they care about a bloke who lived 2,000 years ago? What's it got to do with me now? Perhaps that's you this morning. I don't know how you end up here at church, but you've ended up here at church or you're online. But the message about Jesus just doesn't seem, it, it seems quaint. <laughs> and it seems like it gives some sort of moral framework and it's helpful for some people and you kind of respect it, but it doesn't really seem relevant to my life now. Well, the section of the Bible we just read it really challenges that idea. It re- and it's going to say that Jesus is more relevant than anything else in this, in this world. He's more relevant than anything, anything in this world to every person all the time. It's a big call, so let me show you how. Uh, last week, if you were with us, we looked at the book of Acts. Uh, within the Bible's kind of story, the book of Acts is the sequel to a book called Luke. Now, Luke was a, a doctor historian and he tried to put an orderly account together of the things that Jesus taught and did throughout his life. And so you have Luke, and then the sequel is Acts. Now, at the end of Luke, you have the death of Jesus. You have the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus then appears for 40 days to multiple people in multiple places. Then Acts chapter 1, you have Jesus ascending up in front after 40 days, ascending into heaven. Acts chapter 2 is 10 days later. Okay, The disciples had gathered together in Jerusalem during a festival. Jesus, when he'd gone up into heaven, before he went, says, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And so here we are, Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, 50, day, uh, 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection. And what we're going to see in Acts chapter 2 is three things or three truths that show us the ultimate relevance of Jesus for everyone all the time. Firstly, we're going to see them speak in relevant languages. Uh, so the scene in Acts chapter 2 is this big Jewish festival. Okay, So people would come from, from other countries for this festival in Jerusalem to celebrate a feast called Pentecost. And so you've got thousands of people from all over the Roman Empire have come. Jesus' disciples, we think the 120, 120 disciples, it says in Acts chapter 1, um, Mostly the, most likely the 120 are gathered together. They're in a room when all of a sudden a large wind comes ripping down into the room. Okay? And then all of a sudden, I, I kind of imagine, it probably wasn't this, but like Jiffy Firelighters. You know Jiffy Firelighters? They light up Jiffy Firelighters. All of them start appearing. 
all over the room. And what happens is that as soon as that happens, the wind comes down, the jiffy firelighters appear, the people who were there, the disciples, start speaking in languages they'd never learned before. So they didn't go to school and did, you know, year seven and eight French and knew one to ten. No, they didn't do that. And yet they were speaking all these languages of the people who were there in, in the city at the time, languages they didn't even know. Now, if you go back into the story of the Old Testament, you see that these images of fire and wind are regularly used in the first part of the story to talk about the presence of God. And so here we have God come into the world and, and give these, these, these men the ability to speak in different languages. Now, the crowd who are there, who come from every nation, they hear these guys spouting off all these different languages and they think, these guys are drunk. They've, they've had way too many wines. And so Peter gets up, and one of Jesus' followers, and he explains, he says, no, we're not drunk. Okay, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. They didn't have 24-hour liquor licensing laws back then. So it was only 9 o'clock. They weren't drunk. Verse 16, he gives an explanation of what's taking place. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So we're going back 800 years in the Bible story to a prophet named Joel who spoke then. Joel said, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And then skip down to 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's here speaking to Jewish people who believe the Old Testament. That's the first half of the Bible. And he's saying there's a prophet that you guys believe in 800 years earlier who said that in the future, God's spirit would be poured out on all people. Now, if you're new to the Christian faith, uh, this is a really important thing to understand. Christians don't believe in the, in the Simpsons God. So the Simpsons God is that, that kind of grandpa up in the sky that sits there by himself. Now, the Bible describes God as one God made up of three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One being, three persons, God the Father, God the Son who becomes Jesus the man, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, if you go into the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, and say, what was the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit was being sent by God the Father to, for particular people at particular times to do particular things or say particular words. Okay, so God the Holy Spirit would be given to a prophet to speak God's message to the people. And so those words would be written down in the Bible. They become, become part of the Bible. The, the Holy Spirit would come upon the king of the, of the people. If he was honouring God, the Holy Spirit would have the king and he would, with the Spirit he would rule the people. The Holy Spirit would be given to guys who were like the craftsmen, like the, 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 the tradesmen who put the temple together. Okay, God gave them special abilities by the Spirit to create the temple. And so the Holy Spirit back in the Old Testament was given to particular people at particular times for particular tasks or to say particular things. Here, Joel is saying, in the future, God's Spirit would be poured out on all his people. Would be poured out on all his people. So that, and he says at the end there, the end of the Joel verse, so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. The Spirit would enable anyone to respond to the message of Jesus. The Spirit would be available to all people. And so Jesus' followers speaking in other languages, Peter says, is a sign that the Holy Spirit has come and that salvation was for all. And so that makes sense of this miracle. 
See, it's not just this random miracle that God just chose. Oh, I know the way I'll show my spirit in the world. I'll make him speak different languages. It's not just a random way of doing it. It's not a party trick. God enabled uneducated men to speak languages they had not learned to show a reversal of another story in the Old Testament. So if we reverse right back to the book of Genesis, chapter 11. You see in chapter 11, you remember the Tower of Babel. So God's people were supposed to scatter and glorify God throughout the world. But instead they gathered together, they built a tower in defiance of God. And so God comes down and he confuses their languages, it says. So they're all speaking different languages. They can't understand each other. And so they scatter everywhere. And so back in chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11, God confuses their language to bring judgment. Acts chapter 2, languages are restored to bring salvation. They're restored to bring salvation. God is enabling language that is relevant to every person there. So regardless of where you came from on that day, someone would be speaking about God to you. Why? Because the message about Jesus is for every language, every tribe, every tongue, every dialect, every person. It's why today there are people throughout, there are teams throughout the world who are furiously trying to translate the Bible into every single language, dialect that's ever been invented. They're just furiously working through trying to translate the message for those people. It's why Howard and Trish, who's part of this congregation, you know, who in their retirement are learning French. <laughs> That's, learning a language is hard. <laughs> They're learning French to go overseas to tell people about Jesus. It's why Josh and Nikki are learning Indonesian. The news about Jesus bringing salvation is relevant for all people. But let me pull back from it. Maybe I'm overstating it. Maybe it was obviously relevant to the people back then because God did this miracle and enabled these people here and these people who were right at the time of Jesus. What makes it relevant to us all the way up here? The second thing we're going to see. Jesus is the resurrected king. All right, so Peter continues, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And so he's saying, look, you guys, you guys know Jesus. Maybe they weren't all there to see Jesus, but they definitely heard about him, the miracles that he'd done, the fact that he raised people dead. He's saying they were signs about who he was, but you guys, instead of following him, well, it was according to God's plan that you killed him. But then he turns the corner and he says, but God, even though you killed him, God raised him from the dead, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised him up because death couldn't hold him. He was God's son. So then Peter then moves on to give two references in the Old Testament. Again, he's talking to Jews who believe the first half of the Bible as the word of God. He goes back and says, I'll give you two references in the Old Testament to the fact that the king who would come, the promised king who would come, would rise from the dead. And so verse 25, he quotes David, written a thousand years before when Peter was writing, uh, speaking. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So David is writing a thousand years earlier and he's speaking about a Holy One who would not see corruption, that would not see decay. It's another way of saying, would not, would not stay dead. And so the question is, is David talking about himself? Because it sounds like David's talking about himself. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. It sounds like he's talking about himself, but Peter says to them, this is what David said a thousand years earlier. Now, where's David now? He's dead. He's dead. He's in a grave. His grave's in Jerusalem. We know he's dead. He's, he's got a tomb. He's dead. And so it can't be talking about David. So who is the Holy One who would not see corruption? Who is it? Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, that's David a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him to, to him, sorry, sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And, and so Peter goes back and says, back a thousand years with David, David was given a promise. He didn't just speak those words before. He was given a promise by God in 2 Samuel 7 that David's descendant, or one of David's kids, or grandkids, or great-great-great-grandkids, would sit over an eternal kingdom, that he'd be an eternal king. And so they called this descendant of David the Christ, the Messiah, the king. David spoke about this king, this holy one, who would not stay dead. God's king, his holy one, would rise from the dead. And so verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. David said a king would come, one of his descendants, who would be a holy one, who would not taste death, sorry, who would not stay dead, but rise from dead. And so Peter's looking him in the eye and he says, Jesus is the king. Verse 33, being therefore exalted, we're talking about Jesus, at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you are, yourselves are seeing and hearing. What Peter's saying there is that Jesus didn't just rise from the dead and stay hanging out with his mates forever. Acts chapter 1, what happens? He ascends to, it says here, the right hand of God. That is, he was given the place of authority as the king of the universe in the throne room of God. So Jesus ascends to sit in that place of authority. And then it says, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So if you go back into the story of the Bible, you see that when kings became kings, they were anointed with oil which was a symbol of the spirit coming on the king to enable their rule. And so here it's saying, as Jesus ascends into heaven, as he is sitting in the throne room of God with authority in heaven over all the universe, God's spirit is a, is Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus to say, this is the authority of king of the universe. And then Peter's saying, the spirit then is now given out on his people. And Peter is saying, that's what you're seeing right now. The reason the spirit, you're seeing the Spirit come upon these people is because Jesus is now that ascended king. He's the king of the universe. Now, do you think that's relevant to your life? Do you think that's relevant to your life? I, on Friday night, I showed this image of, of this lady here. Okay? And I looked at the kids and I thought to myself, I said to them, who knows who this is? And, and some of their faces like, uh, no idea. Now, I said to them after that, is, th this is your queen. This is your queen. 
Does she seem relevant to your life? They're like, no, no, no. But I don't know if you have to be young to feel like she's irrelevant to your life. If I asked you, does she seem relevant to your life, your every day, what you do and how you relate to your family? Does the queen seem? No. <laughs> and so as Australians, we have this very, very malnourished understanding of what royalty is about. This really, really super minimal, distant view of royalty. And so we need to get in our heads, Jesus is not that type of royalty. Jesus is not the queen. No, no. I want to grab your two fingers for a moment. Take your pulse. So put it in here. Feel your pulse beating for a second, everyone. (laughs) Jesus is the king who is in control over where that thing beats. He's sustaining your heart beating this very second. Think about the most important thing in your life right now, whether it's your kids or your job or uh, a holiday you want to go on, family, friends, your computer. Jesus is the king who has given you those gifts. Jesus is the king who enables you to enjoy these gifts. Think about this morning, just even this morning, thoughts that have gone through your head, whether they were good thoughts or bad thoughts or um, good things you might have done or bad things you might have already done today. Jesus is the one who sees every single thing you've done today, every thought you've had, every motivation you've had, and, and at the end of time, he will judge every single one of them. Take a massive breath. Jesus is the one that enables your lungs to fill up. He sustains your body, your soul, this world, this everything. How relevant is Jesus to you? See, the truth is Jesus is more relevant than the oxygen we breathe, all the things that we think we need. We need Jesus more than anything. Jesus is the king. He's not like the queen. He's not this distant royalty. Jesus is the king and sustainer and judge of the entire universe. Whoever, doesn't matter who you are, whether you're religious or not, he's the king. But it's not just that. Thirdly, Jesus is the saviour. Jesus is a saviour. Peter says it early on in his speech, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then later in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, imagine you're there. Okay, you come to this festival in Jerusalem. It's Pentecost. It's the first fruits, okay? So uh, they're bringing the harvest in. It's a bit of a party. And a guy gets up and gives a speech after this incredible thing that happens where they're all speaking and he looks you in the eye and says, you killed him. He accuses you of murder. Now, 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 I I put myself in their shoes because it's a big crowd. Is that really fair, Peter? I'm assuming there were some people that were there 50 days earlier or 53 days earlier when Jesus was... Uh, was being put on trial. And you know, the Jewish people at the trial were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So I'm assuming that group of people 
you could say, yeah, they killed him. <laughs> they were responsible for his death. But, but you're thinking 50 days later, all these people come from all these other countries for this festival. Some of them weren't even there. And yeah, they might have seen and maybe even heard some of the teaching of the year, Jesus over the years, but is it really fair for Jesus, Peter to get the finger out of them and say, you murdered him, you had him killed? How are they really responsible for killing him? Now, I think there's two answers to this. Firstly, Peter is speaking about their corporate guilt, okay? The Jewish people as a whole. Um, they had rejected King Jesus. Yes, there were people within the Jewish faith that had trusted Jesus, that had followed Jesus. We have the accounts of them in the Gospels. But the people as a whole, including the religious establishment, had rejected him, and that led to his death, his murder. So in a sense, they were corporately responsible for his death. But I actually think there's a second way to understand what Peter is saying here. And it's that second way that makes Peter's accusation that you killed him relevant to us as well. And that is that Peter isn't just saying they killed their king. Peter recognises the fact, and the Bible recognises the fact, that we killed the king. That we killed the king. See, what Peter is saying here about what they had done actually picks up on a major theme that runs right from the beginning of the Bible right through. Genesis chapter 1, you have the story of God creating us and his good world and us saying to God, who is in a sense the king, the ruler of the world, we don't want to listen to you anymore, God. And No, no, actually what we did was this. We killed the king. We killed the king. Now, not literally because God's too big. It's really hard to kill someone that big and so, so powerful. So how do you kill a king without when a king's so powerful? Will you, will you do it in your heart? You do it in your mind. You kill the king. Well, how do you do that? Well, have you ever had a person in your life? Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a spouse. Someone deeply close to you. All of a sudden, turn from being from loving you and speaking to you to all of a sudden cutting you off. Have you ever had the silent treatment, you know? I am, what are we doing when we give the silent treatment to people? What are we doing? We are saying, you are dead to me. You are dead to me. I don't have to literally kill you because I can kill you by acting like you are dead, by murdering you in my heart. Friends, the Bible says that's what we do to God. That's what you and I do to God. That's what humanity did to God. Right back, back, back then in the garden, we said, God, you are dead to us. We don't want you to be king. We're going to act like you're not there, and we're going to do things our own way because in the end, we want to rule this place ourselves. And so the Bible gives that what happened back then, the word sin, to define what it is. And so as you read through the story of the Bible, you see how this king killing that humanity does in our hearts and minds plays out again and again and again as you and I and all the people throughout history we all want to be king over each other then we destroy ourselves we destroy each other we destroy our world and so the story of the Old Testament is the story of how this king killing plays out and destroys humanity and then as you come to Jesus what happens God's king actually arrives in the world and what do we do to him? We kill him. <laughs> we literally kill the king. 
See, Jesus' death on a cross was not just because a bunch of Jewish people and Roman people back then had him killed. It wasn't just because of that. Jesus died for every moment of your life when you and I acted like God was dead. It was our sin that nailed him to that cross. And so Peter said to the people back then, you killed the king. And the whole Bible says to us, we killed the king. We killed the king. Jesus died for us. Peter's words are as relevant to us now as they were to them back then. So how do you respond? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Uh, six weeks ago, jump in my car, going to visit someone who's just had a baby. Really, really happy as I'm driving out the driveway. As I back out the driveway, I'm going back. And all of a sudden I hear a bang and I look through the back window and I see my next door neighbour and his face is red and he's screaming and he's saying, go forward, go forward. And so I've, I've, I've panicked and gone forward and then jumped out of the car and realised that I'd hit his dog. Now the dog survived. But in that moment, <laughs> I was smashed. I, I, all I remember is going onto the front steps and just sobbing uncontrollably, kind of in, in shock with this deep regret because I didn't know if the dog was going to live at that stage and I knew how much he loved his dog. And, and, and the idea that it could have been a person as well, all those things flashed through your mind. The regret. Friends, that is nothing compared to what these people were going through in this moment back then. These were Jewish people. They, their whole lives were built around the fact that God one day was going to send a king and this king was going to bring liberation and this king was going to rule them. And it was, it was all their Christmases come at once and then all of a sudden Peter gets up and he says, you know what? You killed your king. You killed him. You killed your king and saviour. And so you can imagine. You, I, I know what it felt like to think I'd killed a dog. You can imagine what they feel like. They were cut to the heart as the weight of what they had done drops them to their knees and they cry out, what can we do? What can we do? Friends, lots of people out there who even come to church say they understand what Christians believe. They might be able to recite a creed. They might be able to give you the basic tenets or the basic beliefs of Christian faith. But unless... You are cut to the heart because of your sin, then you don't get it. You don't get it. If your response to your king killing of God, your silent treatment of God, is just to think, I can do a bunch of good things, I'll just make up for it, I might give to charity a bit more, I might do these sorts of things, you don't get it. If your response to your king killing, to your rejection of God, is to think you can do a bit, bit more religious stuff, go to church maybe, read your Bible, maybe pray a bit more, you don't get it. The truth is that our sin was the reason Jesus was nailed to the cross. 
You can't fix it by just being a good person. You can't fix it by just being religious. What it does is this. It drops you to your knees and makes you cry out, what the, what the heck can I do? What can we do to be saved? See, these people get it. They can't do anything. They need help. Peter says, turn and trust. Look, verse 38. Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's repent mean? It simply means to turn around. Turn around from living, walking away from God, from giving God the silent treatment. Turn around and trust in King Jesus. Follow King Jesus. And then he says, be baptized, which is, is a symbol of dying to a life without King Jesus and living a life for King Jesus, trusting in King Jesus. And Peter says, when you turn and trust, when you stop giving the silent God the silent treatment and you cry out for him for grace and mercy, then firstly, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. So early on, you might have noticed it said, and I didn't make lots of it, but it said there, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That is, Jesus' death on a cross was not God's plan gone haywire. You know, God sent his son into the world and it's going to be all rosy and then he gets killed and he goes, oh, that's, that's no good. I'll have to try and bring him back from the dead. No, no. God, from the beginning of time, put a plan in place for Jesus to die on a cross. Why? To enable our sins to be forgiven. And you see what this means? It means this, that God used the most evil act in history, by definition. See, if the greatest evil in the world is our is our king-killing hearts, then the greatest expression of that is when we actually literally kill the king. We kill his son. And so God took the most evil act in history and he used it to bring about the forgiveness for our king-killing hearts. He used the greatest evil to bring the greatest good. So the cross does two things. When you look at the cross, you should think two things. Firstly, you should think this. It should make you drop you to your knees and think, I can't save myself. That the weight of my sin is so great, it pushes me to my knees and says, what can I do? But at the same time, the cross does this. It raises you up and says, although you can't save yourself, Jesus did. His grace, his forgiveness is abundant. What he did on the cross absorbed all the punishment for your sin and he gave you his perfection, his perfect life, his perfect relationship with God. And so it crushes us to our knees, the cross, but it also makes us raise up our hands and say, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. But more, Peter says, you receive the Holy Spirit. So turn, trust, you'll be forgiven, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit right then, you see, was given the miraculous ability to speak in other languages. But as you read through the book of Acts, you see that not everyone who gets the Holy Spirit starts speaking in different languages. It's just a particular gift for a particular moment. But what you do see here as you go forward is that anyone who puts their trust in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is there to help you follow King Jesus, to enable you to follow King Jesus, to trust Jesus, to turn and trust. And so 3,000 Jewish people that day repented, 3,000, and became followers of King Jesus. 3,000 people, as they were listening to Peter and thinking, is this relevant to me? 
They look like a bunch of drunk men. I'm just going to spam folder this message that he's saying, no, 3,000 people said, no, that doesn't go in the spam folder. And so today, my desperate prayer is that you see this passage is relevant to you. Same message I had for the youth on Friday night. Because if this passage is correct, it's no accident you're with us today. If this Jesus is really, truly Lord and he sustains your life, then he is the one who's brought you here this morning. He is the one who's got you listening online. He's the one who's got you listening to this. And he's brought you to this place right now that he might know you, that you might turn from killing him off with your mind and trust in him to be forgiven that you might receive the Holy Spirit to live a new life for him. So this morning, I want to give you a chance to do that. It doesn't involve you getting on your knees, but it does involve you talking to God. It does involve you breaking the silence. And so I'm going to pray now, and if you want to turn and trust in King Jesus to be forgiven of your sins, then please pray with me. Father God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to take the punishment that our evil rejection of you deserves. Please help us by your spirit to follow King Jesus. Amen. Brother and sister, if today is the day where you said, I'm going to turn around in your heart and your mind to trust in King Jesus, then please come and chat to me afterwards. I'd love to chat to you. Speak to someone you might have brought you along this morning. Find someone and let them share that journey with you of trusting your King.